Well, let me tell you a little mafia story, a mafia Christmas, okay? Little Joey was the son of a mafia boss. He was in his bedroom writing a Christmas list to Jesus. Little Joey desperately wanted a bright, shiny, new red wagon for Christmas, so he started writing. Dear Jesus, if I get a red wagon for Christmas, I won't pick on my brother or mess around with my brother. I'll get along with him for a whole year. Then Joey thought, you know, Hank, he's such a brat. I could never keep that promise. So he threw that letter away and started again. Dear Jesus, if I get a red wagon for Christmas, I'll eat all my vegetables for a year. Well, then he started thinking about that. Well, that means spinach, broccoli, and asparagus. Yuck! I can never keep that promise. He threw that letter away. Then he gets an idea. Little Joey ran downstairs, and from the family nativity scene, he grabbed the statue of the Virgin Mary. He wrapped it in newspaper and stuffed it in a, in a grocery bag, took, it, took that bag upstairs, put it in the back far closet, the darkness of his closet. He went back up to his room, went, went back to writing the letter, okay? Now, like a wannabe mafia boss, he writes, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> I can just see a little kid doing that. I love Christmas. It's a great time of year. I love it for many reason. it, reasons. It reminds me of my childhood, you know, driving through with the family, all the Christmas decorations. There was a, a Santa Claus. Somebody had a Santa Claus there about a week before Christmas, and they'd hand out candy. That caused a traffic jam, of course. Terry's great with uh, decorating our house. She always makes it look festive. Yesterday, she had us go out to a Christmas tree farm. We cut down a Christmas tree and did all that stuff. What about the smells of Christmas? You know, the pine smell, and then there's the food. My favorite. Okay, I love it. I love it. Nothing better than smelling that eggnog, you know, with a little nutmeg on top of it, the candy, the fudge. I'm one of these crazy people. I even like fruitcake. So if you don't want your fruitcake, just send it my way. I'll eat it. Okay. There's the family heirlooms, things that are handed down. As we set up our stuff, our nativity or the praying Santa. We have one of those praying Santas that's over the, the manger scene. Um, ornaments on the tree. You know, it's worth tearing up a little bit. You think of how much your family has grown. Remember, a lot of you have those ornaments that say, our first Christmas. You put that on the tree every year. That's what we're doing in this series. We're talking about the first Christmas. What would it really be like if this was the first Christmas? What would our attitudes be like? What, would we be in awe? Would we be going, ah, what a bunch of junk? What would we be doing, you know? Would we be Grinches? <laughs> I don't know. Now, with all of that said, it wouldn't be Christmas to me without the Christmas music, right? All the great Christmas music. Here's a top five song list from Billboard magazine. Okay, Billboard, kind of a secular group, so they're not trying to be religious, but here they are. Number five, A Holly Jolly Christmas by Burl Ives. There's Jingle Bell Rock. Number three is the Christmas song, Merry Christmas to You by Nat King Cole. Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee, that's number two. And number one is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. 
Now notice, there's no real Christmas songs in those. It's because we have a tendency to do stuff with Christmas. We kind of make it sentimental or emotional. We go all the way and make it sappy sometimes. And we completely miss the real feeling of that first Christmas, what was really going on. The record written by Luke contains the first Christmas carol ever sung. And it is a revolutionary song. It's anything but sappy and sentimental. I'll show you what I mean. It was sung by Mary, the young teenage mother of Jesus, who had just been with her older cousin, talking about this whole thing. She's from a little-known town called Nazareth. She was uh, betrothed to be married to a simple carpenter named Joseph. Her song was the first Christmas carol ever sung. It's called the Magnificat. And that's because of the Latin version of the text, deriving its name from where Mary said, uh, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, before we go any further, I want to change your perception of this song because it's really revolutionary, all right? Here's how you might, you and I might think of this song sounding, you know, if it was... Typically, the way we think of Mary's song, it would sound something like this. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God, my Savior. Real beautiful. Beautiful, holy Michael Talbot. That's the Magnificat. But it doesn't sound very revolutionary, does it? Not, not really. Uh, maybe we should think of it as sounding something like this. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. Uh-huh. We all want to change the world. Now, that's a revolutionary song, right? Or we could go way out there on the edge and be radical about the whole thing and follow the Twisted Sister version. That's more like it. That's more like it, right? That's a revolutionary song. Well, this seemingly harmless Christmas carol sung by a teenage mother is a revolutionary song. It's foreshadowing a revolutionary man who created a revolutionary movement that's still around today 2,000 years later. Wow, that's a revolution. Don't miss what I mean, what I mean there. I mean, we've heard all kinds of revolutions, revolutionary things that don't make a whole lot of change. But this was a revolution that split the way we actually keep time, B.C., A.D. It was a marked shift in the world. E. Stanley Jones, the famous Methodist preacher, I'm messing up my thing here. Here's what he said. He was a scholar. He said that this 
particular Christmas carol that I'm talking about was the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. It's a pretty strong statement. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, instructed missionaries to poverty-stricken India never to read the words of this Christmas song in public because it could incite riots in the streets. At Christmas, we often picture Mary as a gentle mother of pale, unearthly beauty, robed in baby blue clothing, her innocent face praying and hallowed or haloed. And, and, and there's boys' choirs in the background singing, basically irrelevant to what we think about today. Instead, Mary was more like a rough, poor peasant girl who longed for justice for her oppressed people. She was a refugee traveler without shelter. She was an unmarried mom traveling with Joseph and forced to give birth in an unpleasant and unsanitary animal stall, not a comfortable inn. Listen to the lyrics of Mary's song. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Can you see Mary's song is not a pious hymn. It's a revolutionary anthem. An anthem for a God who is intervening for hope and justice, for peace, for joy. And he's doing that in a world of human blindness and selfishness and arrogance and greed. I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I a revolutionary? Let's define revolution. It means the sudden, the complete or marked change of the establishment. And a revolutionary is part of a revolution and one who lives radically outside the establishment. A revolutionary is a maverick. He he fights the powers that be. She goes against the grain. Mary was the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. She played a huge role in the first Christmas. I want us to explore three realities about this Jesus revolution. First of all, the Jesus revolution is caught. It's got to be caught somewhere. And revolutions typically start with individuals. In fact, they always start with individuals. This song can be divided into two stanzas. First five verses are about Mary herself. She speaks about herself. In the other verses, she speaks about others. And she dealt with it in three ways. 
personally, priority, and properly. So Mary took it, first of all, personally. In verse 46, we can see that. Now, many of you are married. And guys, how did you know she was the one? Other than the fact that she told you she was the one. <laughs> okay? How did you know? There was a point where you realized the, the greatest affection that you had, your loyalty, your trust, was to go to this particular woman. There was something in you that said, she's the one. This text says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's highest and greatest affections, loyalty and trust, are in God. Outwardly, Mary still looked like a teenage girl. During her pregnancy and beyond, she was the object of ridicule and slander, confusion, But inwardly, this teenager was part of a revolution. You know why? It's because she got it. She got it. Do you get it? Do we get it, really? It's all predicated on belief. And and Mary believed everything about Jesus. You start living like a revolutionary when you start believing what the Bible says about Jesus and what Jesus said about himself. Mary is speaking in this song with a prophetic voice. Understand, Jesus is still growing in the womb. He hasn't taken his first first breath. But Mary is saying things about what Jesus will do as if he's already doing them. Do you believe Jesus I mean, that's really a big question. It's not one to skim over. Do you really believe Jesus? If we're honest, I think we believe parts of him, parts of Jesus. More specifically, we like believing the part about heaven. Oh boy, I get to go to heaven. I believe in Jesus. But really, we fail to understand it's, we don't really get to the heaven part without getting to all the other things being true. So that's very important. The big question. Mary also made it a priority. It wasn't just personal. It became a priority. When the text says, my soul magnifies the Lord, there's a Greek word here called megaluno. Okay, kind of sounds like a Spanish word to me, not Greek. But it, it, it basically means magnify. It, it's where we get our word megaphone from. Megaphone. And it's a present tense verse. It doesn't stop being in the present. So it's suggesting that it's happening now and it will always happen. When you believe, you prioritize, you worship right. Mary was worshiping the right God. God made humankind with a need to worship him. The first of the Ten Commandments. You know what it says? You shall have no other God beside me. We're going to worship someone or something. It's just the way we're wired up. We can't help it. Now, maybe you hear people say, maybe you say, I don't really worship anything. Well, that's just not true. Because there's a trail of your time, talents, and treasures that leads to someone or something. Worship always starts inside a person and manifests itself outwardly. Mary has completely rearranged her life to be in the middle of God's plan. 
How have you arranged your life? How have you really arranged it, put it in place? If he's the priority of your life, you ought to be able to point to some areas. This revolution means everything. It's a priority. Mary also responded properly. Two words jump out in this text to me. Humility and fear. Fear of the Lord. See, we don't come to God on our own terms. God only deals with humble people. He just doesn't deal with people who puff out their chest and know it all. He wants humble people. Humility is not thinking about one's self, but about God's outcomes. If Mary had been a pride-filled person, she would have never agreed to this plan. No way. Because this was going to be difficult. This was going to rearrange her life totally. It was one thing to have to bear up under the rumors of people, but she was going to have to see her son killed on a cross. I wonder if she would have agreed to it if she knew every little detail. One thing I do know that she said, whatever's going to happen, I'm your girl. The other word, fear, fear of the Lord. Far too often we fear the wrong thing in life. Things like dental work. Tax audits. Uh, We fear speaking in public. We fear leading a church ministry. Oh my gosh, I could never do that. We fear the wrong thing. We don't fear God. Here's what King David tells us. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. Now let's talk about fear. Fear of God does not mean that you cower in terror before him. It means that you have a healthy, tremendous respect for him. I love this definition. I dug this up somewhere. I love this definition of fear. It's a wholesome dread of displeasing him. Wholesome is a key word there. A wholesome dread of displeasing him. In other words, if I have sinned, it's not the fear of what he will do to me. It's the fear of what I have done to him. I don't want to hurt my Lord. I don't want to do something against him. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear him, you don't fear anything else. Not at all. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear anything. Anything could pop up to make you scared. Here's what David says. The Lord is my light, my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? And he had a lot to be afraid about. People were after his tail. They wanted to kill him all the time. Only the person who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can then say, why should I tremble? We cannot be revolutionaries on our own terms. We must make Jesus our personal God. We must make him our top priority and we must approach him properly. Let's talk about something else. The Jesus revolution is consequential. There's consequences to this revolution. Mary's song said that Jesus has a way of turning things upside down. The revolution affects every part of culture. 
Jesus challenges and changes morality, society, and even the economy. Mm, Good topic for today. He can change all that. Let's talk about the morality first. In verse 51, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. His coming means an end to an insatiable greed and lust for power. The mighty are brought down by the strong arm of the Lord. That's what has happened across centuries. Proud, boastful people lift their heads up to actually challenge God. And if he wants to, and he has, he can swat them away like a fly. World leaders come and world leaders go. They come and rise to power and sooner or later they disappear. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the arm of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Proud men expect to carry it all with them, but eventually everyone dies. Justice will be served. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this, everyone must die once and after that be judged by God. Morality. Jesus has a way of challenging it and changing it. What about the society? In verse 52, it says, he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. It's the great reversal of fortune. That's what Mary is singing about. The coming of Christ brings this great reversal of the fortune in society. You know, what people call luck, Mary calls the work of God. When someone loses it all, we say, oh, they're down in their luck. If they win the jackpot, we go, ooh, it was was good luck. (laughs) Not Mary. She understands that behind this faceless mystery called luck is a sovereign God, a God that's in control. He lifts up, no one can tear down. He tears down, no one can lift up. I mean, really, no king reigns forever. Ask Elvis. (laughs) No king reigns forever. If we lived forever, we would all soon forget God. We would. That's our history from eons ago. We always seem to forget God. Make sure you get this lesson. The ups and downs of history are really the hand of God at work. One person rules another one, then somebody else replaces him. It's the personal hand of God. The mighty think they are secure. And the poor despair of their fate. But God delights in reversing their fortunes. Please understand this. God doesn't pull down the mighty just to punish them. Doesn't kick people off their thrones just to be funny. He does it in order to teach us the truth. All of us. Those watching, those being taken down. Because sometimes we can't learn it any other way. Then there's the economy. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. This is really the most revolutionary part of this song. Not only does he, uh, the coming Christ, upset the proud in this world, and not only does he lift up the humble, but it actually means that the hungry are fed 
and the rich go away empty. You know what that means? It means that Jesus Christ, with him, there's no such thing as common people. No such thing as a common man, a common woman. People feel a little bit better than just working class people, okay? Working class man, working class woman. But with Christ, there's no such thing as common. Let me explain the practical ramifications of this moral, social, and economic revolution that Jesus brings about. Throughout history, whenever the gospel goes into a culture, it usually enters at a lower socioeconomic level. It's a very rare thing for the rich to be first to embrace the gospel. It has happened, but it's very rare. Poor folks usually make up the first church in any culture. Why? Because poor don't have a whole lot to trust in. So they're really ready to receive the good news. It's not usually the rich who listen. It's usually the poor, the lowly, the widows, orphans, the forgotten, the disenfranchised, who are first willing to listen to the gospel. Remember Christ's own words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Whenever the gospel has entered a culture and made an impact on a significant group of people, it always has the effect of lifting those people up economically. Wherever the gospel goes out, whenever it goes out to the poor, it raises up that group in society. How does this happen? Many of you have seen it. Stories like this. An unfaithful husband who's sleeping around. When he comes to Christ, his whole life changes direction. A woman who abused alcohol for decades, when she comes to Christ, she miraculously gets sober and stays sober. Hmm. A lazy man who hasn't done a lick of work in years and years. When he comes to Christ, you see a complete different lifestyle change. The gospel makes people better, and better people make a better world. The gospel not only works that inner transformation that we talk so much about around here, it also does an outward transformation. It literally changes the way people think and talk and act. And in the process... It produces qualities that tend toward moral, social, and economic progress. It's an amazing thing. Look at this. In in large part, what we have in America today is a result of our Christian heritage. Now, Now, I'm not getting into the debate about whether this is a Christian nation or not. Lots of people argue about that. I'm talking about our heritage, okay? It spills over. That heritage spills over. The Puritans and the others who taught the gospel, the the gospel principles of hard work, thrift, saving, investment. It's the residue of the educational system that taught children to read by using Bible stories. It's the result of generations of believers who founded hospitals and libraries and universities. 
in large part, the liberties that we enjoy, the economic standing that is ours, have come about because of the Jesus revolution. That's what did it. What Mary is saying is radically revolutionary. The Jesus revolution is consequential. It has an effect on all culture. Number three, the last one. The Jesus revolution is continuing. It doesn't stop. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. That was back then. She's talking about back then, remembering Israel's deep history all the way back to the patriarchs. She admits that she's part of something that began a long time ago, way before her. And God has made a promise, and here he's remembering that promise. Terry puts this magnet up on her refrigerator, and it's a reminder of God's track record. It says, what God has done for us in the past gives us hope for the future. So true, so true. So what's that say about now? About now. The Apostle Paul said that we are Abraham's descendants, his offspring. When we become Christ followers, whether we're Jewish or not, we become descendants of Father Abraham. It says clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. Because of our faith in Jesus, the promises, the blessings, and the revolution continue through us. Through us. So, would you ask yourself that question again? Am I a revolutionary? Mary was a single woman. Engaged, not married, but she was supposed to be a virgin. She was faithful to God. Then the impossible happened. She became pregnant. She asked the angel, how can this be? I've never been with a man. The angel says something that I hope we'd get this drilled in our heads over and over and over again. The angel said, nothing is impossible with God. I don't care what your logic says. I care that the Word of God says nothing is impossible with God. I don't care how many times I've tried something and it didn't work. Nothing is impossible with God. Being part of a revolution can intimidate and even scare, scare you a little bit. I get that. But we serve a God who's not bound by human limitations. We serve a God who will intervene in human history. He already has, and he continues to. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Nothing is impossible. Not with God, it's not. Mary believed in the God of the impossible. If you're tempted to say, hey, I could never be a revolutionary. I'm the quiet type. If you're tempted to say that, well, stop. Don't believe that. Don't believe in your ability to be a revolutionary. Believe in the God of the impossible. 
and then go ahead and be a revolutionary. Mary was blessed because she chose to believe what God had promised. She believed it. With some practice, she has an example for us. With some practice, we can have that kind of bold, revolutionary faith. Now, we're, we're Christ followers, but there's all kinds of examples along the way to help us out also, and Mary's one of those. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Mary. You know we don't worship her, but we sure do respect her. What a revolutionary. What, what a tough cookie she must have been. And the way she pondered things. And, and the way she was always around. She always seemed to pop up in places where, where you were teaching in the synagogues. At the cross. What a radical woman. Lord, let us be more like her when we're supposed to be. Let us learn from her when we're supposed to learn. And Lord, I pray that your revolution, the Jesus revolution, will continue through us in strong, powerful, wonderful ways. Even, even this Christmas Eve, when we get together to celebrate you and have a whole bunch of new folks in here, Lord, would you just let your spirit reign would you let your presence be known? Would you let us all know exactly who we're celebrating and why we're celebrating you? We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.